So until Christmas, we're in this series called Uncharted Territory. Usually we, on Wednesday nights, we do a verse-by-verse -verse study of a book of the Bible, but this series we're just looking at uh, books at a time, uh, books that most Christians don't know about, so it's kind of a survey of each book. We won't read it, we won't read the whole thing, but give you a flavor of what it's about. Um, so tonight we're looking at Zechariah. Zechariah is longer than most of these that we're, that we're studying, so we're going to take it in two parts. Tonight, obviously, is part one. Uh, but Zechariah is one of those books, so-called minor prophets, uh, that a lot of folks just don't know what it's about, which is a shame because uh, out of all the books in the Old Testament, this is one of the main ones that gives us information about the coming of Jesus and uh, the, the prophecies that he fulfilled. So who was this guy, Zechariah? Zechariah, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, was a, was a priest. Uh, his father, grandfather were priests. Zechariah was born in Babylon during the exile. Um, his grandfather was the head of a priestly family uh, in the year 538. And by the way, I gave you a little timeline there in, in case you need it, because there's a lot of dates, and these are key dates. Uh, in 538, when, uh, when Emperor Cyrus decreed that the, the Jews could go home, there was a group of 50,000 who went home led by a man named Zerubbabel. Isn't it interesting? There are some biblical names that never catch on, and that's one of them. <laughs> Zerubbabel was a descendant of David, and so he was uh, decreed the governor of the, of the Israelites, and he led them home, uh, and they immediately, or fairly immediately, started to rebuild the temple. But it got stopped. There was opposition in the land. There were uh, foreigners around who opposed the rebuilding, and there were security concerns, and there were probably other things going on as well. Remember, these were people trying to rebuild their lives. They were very poor, uh, and it, they had a lot on their plate. And so isn't it, isn't it the truth that we can let things like that distract us from the work of God? And last week, I was out, and Alan was here, and he talked to you from the book of Haggai, and you learned about the prophet Haggai and how his, his focus was on getting the people back to the work. After 16 years, that work had lain fallow. You can see the, you can, you can picture in your mind a half rebuilt temple and the, the source of shame that that was. Think about how many older Israelites died without seeing it ever fully rebuilt. Here comes Haggai and he's preaching and saying, hey, how dare you build your own homes and not attend to the house of God? And then Zechariah came along two months later and, and pitched in as well. Uh, you can see if you read the book of Ezra, which I will grant you is not the most exciting book in the Old Testament. But in the book of Ezra, uh, we see Zechariah and Haggai mentioned twice. His name, by the way, means the Lord remembers, which is appropriate for his ministry. So the book is about not just the completion of the temple. You know, whereas Haggai, you read that and you, it's unmistakable. That's what it's about. It's about, hey, let's get back to work. Zechariah talks about the temple, but mostly he talks about the spiritual state of the nation. He's interested not just in the rebuilding of a physical structure, but in the renewal of the souls of the people. He's, he's interested in what we would call revival. Uh, the first half of the book, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is, is a summary of eight visions that Zechariah had in a single night. The second half of the book... Most scholars think that it was written when Zechariah was an older man, whereas this part was when he was very young. So uh, all of that as a, as, a, uh, 
as a preview or as an introduction. One more thing on the on the timeline. Some of you know this, some of you serious Bible students, but I, I just find it interesting. You remember before the exile happened, Jeremiah said it's going to last 70 years. And so scholars debate, okay, what 70 was he talking about? And some think, okay, the 70 started in 605 when that first invasion happened and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are carried away to Babylon and some others. And, the, and it ended in 535 when the bulk of the Jews got back. But others say, no, 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 it's, it started with 5, 586, because that's when the temple was destroyed, and 516 is when the second temple was rededicated. So uh, your, your salvation doesn't depend on knowing that, I'm glad to tell you, but I find it an interesting question to, to ponder. So, uh, and fun, exciting to see how prophecy gets fulfilled. So let's take a look. Let's take a walk through the first half of the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. On the sheets I gave you, that, that's the version that I'm reading out of, the ESV. Uh, in, the, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, if you know these prophetic books and how they start, they always or usually start with a sentence like we see here. In this year, this prophet uh, said these things in the year of so-and-so, the king of Israel. Well, there was no king of Israel when Zechariah was prophesying. So instead, they date it by the reign of Darius, the Persian emperor, because he's the one who actually rules over Israel at this time. And if you're Jewish at that time, that's a source of pain to know we don't even have our own king. I mean, you and I can imagine. We don't even have uh, one-tenth the amount of racial pride that a Jew would. And still, as Americans, it would, it would stick in our craw to, be able to have to say, we don't have a president anymore. We have uh, an overlord in some other country. And yet... Darius was a great friend to the Israelites, just like Cyrus two generations before him. Darius, we know from the book of Daniel, was the one who, who loved Daniel and promoted him. And, and when he was tossed into the lion's den, prayed for his safe return. Uh, Darius also, this is not as well known, uh, when the, the Israelites were being, I guess we would say, persecuted, oppressed, antagonized by their neighbors, he sent a letter saying, leave them alone. Let them finish rebuilding the temple. So you never know. Sometimes you get a pagan ruler who turns out to be your friend, and that's the case with Darius. And the whole point of this first part, these first three verses, is for Zechariah to say to his people, to say to the Lord's people, God hasn't left you. Yes, he was angry with your forefathers. But if you return to him, he'll return to you. Keep, on, keep in mind, when he says return to him, he'll return to you. God hasn't gone anywhere. This is metaphorical language. God is still right where he is, where he was before. The, the point is, if we repent, God will make things the way they were before. God will restore our relationship. All that is required is repentance. And that's why, as Christians, we live by the gospel. We're not just saved initially by the gospel. Every day we live by the gospel. It's, it's repentance. It's trusting in God's grace. So, chapter 1, verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet... Wait, I'm reading... 
You know, no, that's right. Came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechai, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Okay, so this is really interesting. Zechariah is unusual for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, it's one of the more optimistic prophetic books. I think you've probably figured out by now a lot of these prophets were not the happiest of fellows, for a good reason. They had a lot to be upset about. But Zechariah has come to bring a lot of good news. That's one thing. Another thing, and this is really unusual, we can precisely date the exact day of, you know, the day and time when Zechariah is speaking. Uh, I can't, but people who are fluent in, in Hebrew and, and who understand the times, who know the exact dates of Darius's reign, will tell you that Zechariah had his eight visions, are you ready for this? On February 15th, 519 BC. Now that's how precise. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell us what time it was. So, you know, if you're looking for that, I'm sorry. But yeah, that, this is when that happened. So on that night, eight visions come to Zechariah. Uh, that first vision sounds a lot like Revelation, doesn't it? With horsemen, and we'll get into another one that sounds even more like Revelation. The angel of the Lord in this vision is essentially seeing that God's people are upset. Why? Because the Persian Empire is at peace, but we're not. Our enemies, our overlords, the ones who shouldn't be ruling over us, since we should only have God as our king, they're doing great. All stretches, all corners of the empire are at peace. That's the point of the, of the vision. The horsemen go patrolling and they don't find any conflict. And the people say, well, what about us? Why are we struggling if the whole Persian empire is doing well? And the angel talks to the Lord and the Lord says, don't worry, God is jealous for his people. You will be restored. And that's, again, such a good lesson to us. Don't judge the love of God by your present circumstances because God knows what's going on behind the scenes that you don't. And he's working on something that you may not be aware of. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18, the second vision. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. In the Bible, when you see the, the term horn, it often refers to strength. It refers to uh, armies, forces. So there are people who interpret this and say, okay, it's talking about the four nations that have oppressed Israel in the Old Testament, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Persia. Can't prove that, but that's one theory. He says, they've scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these, meaning the craftsmen, have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. So his point in, in, in short is, you've got a bully, yes, but God's going to take care of your bully. Don't worry. Your bullies will answer to me. And it is true, if you study history at all, it is true that no matter how big and bad an empire looks, eventually another one comes along and knocks it off its perch. 
It's always, always true. Nobody ever, there's no such thing as an eternal empire until the, until the reign of Jesus Christ. So uh, there is justice in the end. Now, third vision, chapter two, verse one. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what is its width and what is its length. This is similar to something that happens in Ezekiel. And just like in Ezekiel, or, or similar to Ezekiel, the angel goes to measure Jerusalem, and what he finds is a Jerusalem that's way bigger than any Jerusalem that's ever existed, before or since. So big, in fact, the walls of Jerusalem won't contain it. And so God says, don't worry, I will be a wall of fire around you. Does anybody know that song, right? Uh, the Lily of the Valley. Anybody familiar with the old hymn, The Lily of the Valley? Is that just a Hope Baptist song? Okay. There's that line, a wall of fire about you. I've nothing now to fear. With his manna, he my hungry soul shall fill. I think that's the next line. But anyway, that's where that comes from. I always liked that line, but growing up, I had no idea it was a line from Scripture. But think about that. God in His glory in the desert. He's a pillar of fire going before the people. Now He says, I'm going to take that pillar of fire and wrap it around you. I'm going to be your protection. You won't need walls. I'm going to take care of you. He says, uh, you'll be the apple of my eye. So no bone will possibly harm you. That, that term, apple of my eye, it refers to the pupil. If somebody pokes you in the pupil, you're going to fight back. I don't care how gentle you think you are. And that's God's point. You're the apple of my eye. Nobody's going to sneak up behind my back and hurt you because if they get near you, I'm going to be aware of it. Um, so what is this? Oh, and he says, nations of the earth will join themselves to you. So think about it. He's talking about a, a Jerusalem that's larger than any Jerusalem that's ever existed before this or since. He's talking about absolute protection for the people. He's talking about uh, nations of the earth joining themselves. What is he talking about? I think most of us Christians look at that and say, obviously, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. He's talking about the Jerusalem yet to come when it comes down from heaven, the new people of God on the new earth. That's my interpretation. Um, and I think a lot of folks would agree. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is, I believe, the fourth vision. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So this next vision, in this next vision, uh, Zechariah sees the high priest of Israel. And he is standing in the temple and he's wearing dirty garments, which is a... Which is a an abomination in and of itself. If you know the Old Testament, you know that the, the high priest had to wear garments that were especially, they were especially for him. They were designed by God himself for a purpose. They were holy garments. Now he's wearing these filthy garments. And that represents the sin of Israel. What does a priest do? A priest represents God before the people and the people before God. He stands in the gap. He stands between. So here's Joshua, the representative of the people, and he's covered in dirty garments. So he, what he's saying is, he is, in essence, bearing the sin of the people. He is showing God, or he is showing the world, I, our people are, 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 are unclean, we're, we're dirty, we're sinful before you, we've, we've profaned your name, Lord. And there's Satan standing at his right hand accusing. You know, that's what the name Satan means, right? It's the enemy, he's the accuser, he's the accuser of God's people. But here's the great thing about the story. God doesn't listen to Satan and say, wow, you know what? You're making some good points there. 
I, I never knew how bad my people were. Man, now that you mention it, I think I'm going to get rid of them and get me some new people. Instead, God says, tell you what we do. Let's take these dirty clothes off of him and put clean clothes on him. Let's put a nice, clean hat, a nice, clean turban on him. Let's make him righteous again. That's grace. That's the gospel right there in Zechariah. Uh, he even goes on to talk about the coming of someone he calls the branch. The branch, which is a messianic term. And he says this one will come and he will, he will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Now what day is that? That day is Good Friday. You and I know that. People reading it back then didn't. Maybe even Zechariah didn't know. He was just reporting what he heard. But we know it, not because we're smarter, because we have the, the blessing of, of living uh, in, in the age of, of grace, in, in the day after the cross. So, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. So, in the midst of all these visions, he's managed to go to sleep, and God's like, no, 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 I'm not done with you. Uh, wake up, I've got more visions for you. Uh, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are at the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and, one, and the other on its left. So the lampstand, when you read the rest of the vision, the lampstand represents the resources of God. God's power, God's uh, blessing being poured out upon the nation. The two olive trees, he goes on to reveal, are Zerubbabel, the governor, so the political leader of the country, and Joshua, the high priest, so the religious leader. You know, in Israel, those positions are kind of fluid. You know, as a king or as a political leader of Israel, it's the only nation in the whole history of the world that had an actual covenant with God. America can't say that. No other country can say that, not even modern Israel. So uh, it, God's message is, I've given you everything you need. You will have enough. And I think this relates specifically to the rebuilding of the temple. Don't worry. Don't worry. You look at that half-built, half-rebuilt temple and you get discouraged I'm going to provide. All you got to do is do the work, and I will make sure you have enough. But it applies to us as well. That same kind of promise. God is the same God. He goes on to say, you'll do it not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Anybody ever heard those words? Yeah, that's, this is where that comes from. And that's, that's what we rely on, by the, by the spirit of God, not by our own strength. All right, this next one, chapter 5, 1 through 2. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. That's 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. It's a scroll of the law of God. So what it's talking about is my people... This is not about the Gentiles. This is not about the nations. This is not about unbelievers. My people have forgotten what my word says. My people are living by their own common sense, their own street smarts. They're no longer living by my word. So I'm sending this copy of the law flying through the midst of them, 60 feet long and 30 feet wide, so they'll look up and go, oh, that's what we're supposed to be doing. It's a really vivid image of God saying, do I, do I need to 
do I need to burn it into your forehead? You know, do, I, do I need to shout it at you? The word is right there for you. You were taught it as children. Your, your, your rabbis still teach it in the synagogues if you have wisdom enough to go. The word is right there, so listen. And the whole point is not just that the word is there, but that punishment is coming when we ignore it. Again, I need to emphasize this. We hear stuff like this, and our first thought, our first thought is, yeah, I was watching on the news, and there's these people, and they believe this weird stuff, and they're doing all these awful things, and did you hear what that movie star said, and did you hear what that politician said? And, and God's like, wait, what? A, yeah, they're lost. They're acting like lost people. Yeah, leave them. But why are you not listening to my word? Consistently through the scriptures, God always says, let, let me deal with the pagans. Let me judge them. Are you following the word of God? And if you don't, then you'll reap what you sow. And, and think about the grace of that. We don't think of it as being gracious. We, we think, well, grace would be God getting me off the hook. But if I'm in fifth grade, let's say, and I don't do my homework, and I get an F, is the gracious thing for my mom to go and chew out my math teacher for giving me an F? No, that's the opposite of grace. That's, that's, that's indulging me and, and crippling me for life. No, grace is letting me bear the consequences, but loving me through it, right? And, and God says, you're going to reap what you sow. I'm still going to be God. I'm still going to love you. And when you repent, everything will be the way it should be, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. I love you too much for that. That's what, you're, that's what my word does. All right, Next, uh, seventh vision, chapter five, verse five. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. I just have to stop here and warn you. Now, if you've read Ezekiel, you know that Ezekiel's a little weird, right? Some of the visions there get a little strange. And this is not quite on that level, but this is one of the weirder ones. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So, can you picture it? There's this huge basket. The lid is made out of lead. So, heavy, heavy lid not something that you and I could lift. The angel is able to lift it. He looks in and there's a woman inside who represents wickedness. Now, ladies, don't get upset. <laughs> You're going to like what comes next. And, 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 you know, one of the commentaries I read pointed out, again, I'm no Hebrew expert, but the, this commentary pointed out that the word wickedness in Hebrew is feminine. For whatever that's worth, maybe that's why she's pictured as a woman in this vision. But the point is, He's, he's pushing her back down. He's saying, okay, you, you're not allowed to get out. I've corralled you. I, I've, I've, uh, I've gathered all the wickedness of the people in one place, and I'm not going to let it get out again. It's like, it's like this basket is Pandora's box. I don't want to open it and let this out among my people. And then the part I haven't read is it's going to get carried away in the vision by these women who have the wings of a stork. Now, they're never called angels, and so some have said, okay, well, these might be evil beings, but they're carrying away the sin of God's people. So to me, 
They're angelic beings, and this is the only, as far as I know, the only place in Scripture where angelic beings are presented as female. So, okay, are you, are you better, ladies? Is it okay with you? Okay, so either way, whether I'm right about that or not, the point of the vision is that God has gathered the sin of his people in one place and he's carried it away. As Isaiah would say, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid the iniquity of us all upon him and he's carried it away. And again, that's not what Zechariah is saying, but it's the same thing. It's the image of atonement. Remember in, in Israel, they had that annual day of atonement where the, the priest would come and would sacrifice a bull and then he would take the goat, the scapegoat, and he would place the sins of the people on the head of the goat and then they would chase that goat into the wilderness where it would wander until it died. And that was once a year. Once a year they would fast the whole day and they would do this as a symbolic way of saying, we know God's going to take our sins away. We're chasing the wickedness out of our midst. This is God saying, I'm going to take the sin and I'm going to carry it away myself. I'm going to get it out of your midst. I'm going to make my people clean, make my people pure. All right, chapter 6, verse 1. I, I, I miscounted. This is the seventh vision. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Now this is the one I mentioned earlier that sounds a lot like Revelation when it talks about the four horsemen, as we say, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In Revelation, they represent war, destruction, famine, and pestilence or disease. Here, they represent God's promise to judge the nations. And again, we've talked about this in, as we've studied the, the prophets. As modern, sophisticated people like us, we read these and we say, man, people sure were bloodthirsty back then. I, I don't get excited about judgment falling on anybody. Well, that's because we've never been oppressed. You know, with all due respect, maybe one or two of you know something of really being a victim of injustice, but most of us, we've been treated mean by a person or two. Maybe we've had a few things not go our way, some things that weren't really fair. But very few of us can compare to what the Israelites experienced and so many other people down through history, including a lot of people on earth today. And we don't know what it is to just have everything taken away and no recourse at all and no rights and nothing because this one group of people just says, we're going to have our way. We're going to do what we want because we're bigger and stronger. And when you're in that position, you want justice. That's the way God made us. You want to see justice happen. It's not enough to know, okay, someday we're going to be free. The people who did that need to pay. And so when Zechariah is seeing this vision, he's saying, all right, children of Israel, don't worry. God's going to get justice for you. And those who have lived fat and high on the hog on injustice of my people will have to pay for what they've done. There's a fine line there, isn't there? To know, to acknowledge the need for justice, while at the same time acknowledging that our, our call from God is to love our enemies. But that's what the Holy Spirit's for. It gives us wisdom to know, yes, there's forgiveness, but there's also consequences for evil. And we have to, we, as, a, as a culture, we have to practice both. Um, and it's a sermon I didn't plan to, to preach, but anyway. All right, so the last vision, chapter 6, verse 12 
says, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. So again, we hear of this man, the branch, who is the Messiah to come. He will build the temple of the Lord. Now, hold on. Did Jesus build a temple, a physical temple? No, actually, Herod was the one who built the temple of Jesus' day. And Jesus is the one who came along and said, it's all going to be destroyed. And he was right. 30, 40 years later, it was destroyed by the Romans. It's never been rebuilt. So what is this talking about? Is this a prophecy that didn't get fulfilled? Well, if you read the New Testament, you realize the temple Jesus built and is continuing to build is us. It's us. And by the way, we're going to talk about this more next year. I'm going to do a whole series on what is the church and why is the church important. Common misconception. People say, my body is a temple of the Lord. Well, actually, we are the temple of the Lord, not just you individually. We are God's temple. We're, we're the building blocks, the stones by which he's building a building to show the whole world, look what I can do. Um, so that's what he's talking about here. He will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. And then down in 15, and those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. Talking about us, us Gentiles. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So this is part, and this is where we're going to stop for the night. This is part of sort of a consecration ceremony for Joshua the high priest. He's saying, okay, let's... It's sort of like if our church went through a really, really hard time and then we got through it and y'all said, let's have a big ceremony where we basically recall the pastor and let's get off to a fresh start. And so Zechariah is recommending they do that with the high priest. Let's, let's reconsecrate our high priest, but it's obvious there's more going on here. It's, it's looking forward to the day when the great high priest arrives and the great high priest is Jesus. And I know y'all know this, but if you ever get, just get bogged down in the Old Testament and all the information about the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood, and, and it's easy to get bogged down in that. Just remember that all of it, all of it points to Christ and that all of it uh, prefigures what he's going to do. Jesus came along and he represented us before the people and he offered a sacrifice once for all and the sacrifice was himself and he lived a perfect sinless life so he wasn't having to sacrifice for his own sins but for ours. Uh, so more than any other book of the Old Testament, Zechariah makes it clear that the Messiah to come will not just be a king but he'll be a priest. Now is that something that the people of God understood when Jesus came into the world? No, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And, and you know, y'all you, know my tangent on that by now, right? Don't think that we're going to get it completely when Jesus comes back the second time. We, we, won't under, we won't predict it all. It won't all go the way we think it will just because we know Revelation and Daniel, etc. But the other point here is the king will be a priest. He's not just going to rule in a political sense. He's going to rescue us. It also shows that people from all over the world will be part of this new temple that Jesus is building. And aren't you glad that God chose to use uh, bricks that weren't just Israelite, but you know, all, the, all the peoples of the world? 
And that's going to be quite a temple when it's done. The church of Jesus that will stand um, as a temple for all time. All right. That's the first half of Zechariah. We'll, we'll do the second next week. I'm going to close us in prayer tonight. Yes, you may. The myrtle trees. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if I found that out. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember reading it. I don't remember if there is, if there's a likely theory on what that represents. Right. Those are, yeah. Yeah, me either. Me either. I, was this Joshua as in Moses? No, no, no. This is much, much later. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah. Joshua was a really popular name. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is, yeah, this is many centuries later. I'm one for two. Any other questions? <laughs> All right. All right, I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just burn it into our minds and call, just give us a hunger for more of it, but also, Lord, teach us to obey it and to grow in love for you. Let us not just fill our minds with knowledge, but to change our lives and obedience to it. Lord, we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Amen. Amen.